Well, this evening we look at um, Lord's Day 35. We looked last time at the first question and answer. We're going to consider the final two this evening. But first I'd like to read with you from Deuteronomy 4, beginning in verse 5. Now, just a little recap on where we are here. Um, Kids, you understand Deuteronomy was written by Moses, right? It's the last of Moses' five books. And really, Deuteronomy is sort of the recounting, most of it, of a final address, a final sermon that Moses gives to God's people. The first three chapters are historical. He reminds them of how God has watched over them, guided them, led them as they were on their way to the promised land. After they had come out of Egypt, as they were on their way to Canaan. And uh, here in chapter 4, he begins to get into God's law, God's commands. How the Lord spoke to his people and the significance of what he had said. Now he's leading up to um, recounting for them the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. Uh, But in preparation for that, we have our text here. See, he says, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the, to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules, that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you, And brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. 
Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Amen. Bearing that in mind, considering the second commandment, you shall not make any image of the Lord your God. Question 97 says, may may we then not make any image at all? And the answer is, God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? No. No. We should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, most religions include some sort of imagery of their false god or gods. Some use two-dimensional images, pictures or portraits of their divine being. Others use statues, three-dimensional likenesses of their gods. Some use abstract images, trees, bulls, things that represent characteristics of their gods. Images are tremendously common religious devices. But why is that? Why are they so popular? So common, so essentially universal. Sociologists who study religions have pointed to a few factors that commend the use of images among religious peoples. For one thing, images make their gods more relatable. By definition, a god is distant, is the other. And so an image, whether in a picture or whether in a three-dimensional image brings the God closer, makes them more imminent, makes them more relatable. For another thing, those images empower the worshiper to approach. In some sense, even to manipulate their God. Of course, with a false God, that's not possible. You can't manipulate what doesn't actually exist. But by giving them a figure that they can touch and address and honor... An image gives them a way to feel like they have ingratiated themselves with or served in some manner their God by serving the image. And all of that makes the false God seem less scary. It's easier to approach a person or a being that you can see and inspect. The familiarity bred by an image enables folks to worship and pray without as much fear. Thing is, the very reasons that people use images in their worship of false gods serve as reasons why the true God 
rejects and commands against images. And that's why a big part of why he gave us the second commandment. To be sure, the implication of the second commandment is that we should not do any kind of bring any kind of worship that God has not commanded, but the heart of the command is that we make no likeness, no image, no representation of God. He hates such images because they are a misrepresentation of Him and because they inherently make Him seem more common, more like us, more approachable on our terms. And so the second commandment indicates to us that God's children shun if they want to honor God, God's children shun the images that inherently dishonor God. So that's our theme. God's children shun images that dishonor God. But in order to see that, we really need to understand what kind of images dishonor God and why they dishonor Him. And then we need to see what God has provided instead. So our first point is to consider images that falsely represent the truth about God. Look at what we confess in answer 97 of our catechism. Here, concerning images, we're given two conclusions. First of all, God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. In other words, images of God Himself are always off limits, and there's no exception to that rule. We can't have images of God provided we promise not to use them in worship. We can't reject or we have to reject images of God in every circumstance. Right? There's no caveat there. It says, well, you can do it here but not there. You can do it in this way, but not that way. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. But then our catechism says creatures may be portrayed. God's not against artwork. In fact, he at times commands it. But God forbids making or having images of creatures in order to worship them or to worship God through them. Classic example was Aaron's golden calf. Kids, you understand that no one thought that a cow delivered Israel from Egypt, right? When they made a golden calf and they said, Behold your God who delivered you from Egypt, they weren't saying they thought an Angus or a Holstein delivered them from their slavery. But that image represented something about God. By portraying Him in the form of a cow, they demonstrated their conviction perhaps about his power or perhaps about his provision for them. But God struck them for that. Thousands of them were killed. There were great penalties for it. And why? Because God will not be worshipped using a portion of the creation. He will not be worshipped that way because images of him invariably are false. That calf gave a, wrong, a number of wrong impressions about God. And those who looked upon it adopted wrong understandings about him. That always happens with images. And therefore God absolutely forbids making images of him. We heard what he said in Deuteronomy 4 through Moses. Moses recalled that at Mount Sinai, 
They heard the voice of God speaking from the mountain. God spoke the words of the law. And they heard those words and they shuddered in fear. In fact, they were so terrified of the Lord when they heard Him speak that they begged Moses, you go hear from the Lord and relate it to us and we'll listen to you, but don't make us hear Him anymore. It terrified us. But He pointed out, As terrified as you were, that was just the voice of God you heard. You didn't see his form. And here he tells them that was intentional. God didn't want them to see a form that they could try to to copy. And so they must now take care not to try to invent a form of that which they didn't see. They were not to try to represent God with any form of a man or a woman with any form of any animal or bird, any bug or fish, with the likeness of any heavenly body they might see in the sky. All such images were off limits because every one of them would be a lie. And that's what the unbeliever invariably does. I mentioned this morning, Romans 1, how the creation reveals to us the reality that God exists. And every person, Romans 1 tells us, every person understands from the creation that God exists. But rejecting the true God, instead they worship the creation. Instead they worship images from the creation. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing or resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And God hates that. He abandons the rebels to their sin. He gives them over to their foolishness and their lies. Images that falsely represent the truth of God dishonor God deeply. And that's why he commanded them then and commands us today to shun such images. And we we agree, right? Of course we do. We would never make images of our Heavenly Father After all, He dwells in unapproachable light. He is the very essence of holiness. Were we to see Him, we know that we would cry out with Isaiah in Isaiah 6, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord. We echo the words of Isaiah 40, To whom then would you liken God, or what likeness compare to Him? We know That there is no way we could ever begin to do justice to the reality of God the Father. And He is a fool who would even attempt. There's no one who is able to do anything but dishonor God by trying to make an image of the Father. And likewise, portrayals of the Holy Spirit. How could we possibly? He hovered over the face of the waters at the creation of the world. He empowered Moses and David and the prophets from within to serve God faithfully. His coming to the church was marked by signs and wonders of power that man cannot even imagine. None of that could we portray. We could only dishonor him by trying. And so we agree that to make an image of God the Father or of God the Holy Spirit is impossible. It's wrong. It's reprehensible. And yet men try, don't they? Of course they do. Renaissance art is filled with efforts to do the impossible. And so is the modern world. A few years back I encountered, sadly, a, uh, encountered in a church, in fact, a book called The Brick Bible, which was an attempt to 
relate the stories of the Bible with images made out of Legos. And you kind of snicker, but it was blasphemous. Not only in the light-hearted and mocking way it portrayed very serious stories from the Bible, but in the way that it used child's toys, used a child's toys to portray God the Father. And it is mockery. The author of it, or the, the creator of it, is actually an atheist who thinks the Bible is foolish and used this as a, a means of mocking what he saw as unbelievable, an unbelievable work of fiction. But what's absurd is not that an atheist would thus mock God with images, but that Christians would find it worthy of purchasing and even displaying at a church. These are devices of Satan used to mock the living God. We, we can agree on that, I think. But what about images of Jesus? The argument is raised, well, he's human. And humans can be portrayed in images. That's how Michelangelo and Durer and other great artists justified their images of Jesus, which conspicuously usually looked like the painter. It's how generations of modern Christians have justified illustrated story Bibles and the like. Images of Jesus fill the modern Protestant church. Children's Bibles are an obvious example, but likewise live portrayals of Jesus in living nativities, in movies, in the media, in the popular uh, new show, The Chosen, which seeks to fill in the gaps that the Bible leaves open. Christian bookstores are filled with home decor that, that presents images purporting to be of Christ. He absolutely saturates American Christian culture. What makes those images of Jesus, of God in the flesh, somehow exempt from the second commandment? Well, he's human, folks say. We're allowed to make images of human beings, and that's true. We certainly may have images of humans, of people, but Jesus is both fully human and fully God. And how can we possibly separate out the one from the other? But it's been done for centuries, they'll say. Surely it can't be wrong if so many Christians have done it. But you know, the church celebrated the idolatrous mass for centuries before the Protestant Reformation came along. That didn't make it right. For years on our shore, the Bible, for years, for decades, for centuries, the Bible was used on our shores to justify slavery and racism. That didn't make it right. And the fact that it's done by many for a long time, I mean, we can use that the other way. For the bulk of the history of the Christian church, the church believed that images of Jesus were blasphemous. What's decisive is not what our generation does or doesn't or how many have done or haven't. What's decisive is what the Bible tells us. Psalm 2 tells us that our Messiah is God the Son who dwells on the throne in heaven. How can we accurately depict the glory possessed by God the Son? We can't. The very attempt is an affront against Him. But if you do not 
portray his glory, then how can any image of him be anything but a lie? It can't be. An atheist says, or an artist says, that he's just portraying the humanity of Jesus, but to do that without portraying his divinity, you're separating that which cannot be separated. The fact is, the truth of Jesus' image cannot be captured, or the truth of Jesus cannot be captured in an image. It's a lie. It's a lie from which, folks, we need to turn away. Even though many of us were raised with images of Christ, even though many of the schools that folks in this room have attended have had images of Jesus purporting to be Jesus in them, we need to recognize that we have not seen his face. And though many did, God saw to it that it was never captured. It was never portrayed, it was never preserved, like so many of his words were. And that therefore God the Son, just like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, is not to be portrayed for us. But hold on, somebody will say. You misunderstand. These story Bibles, these pictures of a benevolent Jesus on the wall, they're not for our worship, they're for our teaching. We're just using them to help folks get to know Jesus, and that means that they're a good thing. They're meant to honor the Lord, and that may well be the intention of the artist or the user. But however well-intentioned, the images are rebellious because they end up foolishly replacing the Word of God. And that's our second point. They foolishly replace the Word of God. You see... That's what images of Jesus invariably do. When did they actually start to become commonplace and accepted? It was in the Middle Ages. And the reason for them was because the people, by and large, couldn't read the Word of God. And so artistic representations of the Bible stories were given to them in the form of statues and stained glass so as to teach the people teaching aids for the unlearned our catechism calls them but what happened then did the people then go on from that to gain a thirst for knowledge so that they learned how to read so that they could delve into the bible no the bible became even less known And the stories being portrayed in 2D or 3D in just small snippets became misunderstood and misrepresented. Years ago in our land, story Bibles were introduced for children. Initially, they were selections from the Bible with the language simplified, but soon pictures were added for visual interest. And then the pictures grew larger and the text grew simpler to the point where today it's common to find story Bibles where the words are merely captions to the pictures. Used to be reaching folks with the gospel meant sending missionaries to preach. But today millions of dollars are spent not to train and send missionaries to foreign lands, but to produce and send movies, images with no preacher attached, which no, with no sermon forthcoming. Images that begin as a supplement to God's Word invariably end up replacing the Word. 
But what God wants from us is a, a worship that is submissive. You heard his admonitions in Deuteronomy 4. Through Moses, he reminded the people how blessed they were to have his word. They were urged to cherish the commands and instructions God had given. And therefore they were told you must obey His commands and teach them diligently. Teach the Word diligently to your children, but not by images. Folks, that the correspondence of those two commands, teach your children, don't use images, the correspondence there is not unintentional. God knows our hearts, knows our temptations. He knew that folks would be tempted to teach their children by images. And so he warned them up front, don't teach them that way. Talk to them. Explain it to them. Proclaim the word to your children. Don't try to portray it. Because God wants his people instructed by the living preaching of God's word. Romans 10, God, speaking through Paul, emphasizes that intention. Would you be saved from your sins? Well, then you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And how is one brought to that kind of confessing faith? Verse 17 tells us, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Not by seeing images, not by watching movies, but by hearing the proclamation of the word of Christ. That is what God has ordained for forming faith in our hearts and the hearts of our children. But modern communication specialists will say, but wait, wait, wait. Children learn better through images. And many adults are visual learners who need to see it to understand it. So we're told that if we're to reach children and if we're to convey the truth to many adults, we need images. Now please understand that's not an inconsequential concern. We can and do learn by seeing. And so do our children. So what do we say to that? How do we answer that? Well, we recall that God has given us images. Baptism. The Lord's Supper are images ordained and prescribed by God. But someone will say, but there's only two of them. Mm -hmm. You only need two. Because those two focus us on the heart and the essence of the gospel. That Jesus cleanses us with his blood from all our sin. So that we plunge into the depth as an old man and come out as the new man in Christ. Jesus feeds us unto life. Not with the bread of earth that is eaten and expelled. But with the living bread of Christ who was broken as the penalty for our sin whose blood was poured out that life might be poured into us so that we, partaking of Him, are united to His broken body and poured out blood and that we, having been united to Him, are united also to one another. These are images that are deep and broad and significant and are ordained by God Himself. And those images point us back to the word that is proclaimed which gives us life. The word that is proclaimed that imparts our faith. The word that draws us to Christ through whom we encounter Him.
The preaching of the word is primary and is supported by those images. And that word comes with great power. Isaiah 55 says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. God has ordained to use His Word powerfully. The world says that's foolishness. Communication scientists say that's not the way it works. But Satan understands the power of God's Word. Satan understands that God uses it to impart faith into hearts filled with unbelief and life unto souls that are dead. He understands that simply reading the Word of God can loose the shackles of a man bound in slavery to sin. How hearing the Word can shine light into the darkest heart. Satan sees and fears that power and he does all he can to stop it. And that's why he encourages the use of images. Because he knows the price of relying on images is high. Images are easy. Aren't they young people? Which is easier? Spending a half an hour reading, studying, considering the Word of God? Or spending that half an hour scrolling through TikTok on your phone? You know the answer. You spend that half an hour scrolling on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or pick your social media platform. Do you recognize how hard it is to set that phone down and pick up the word to read? It's that much harder. Because your brain is a muscle. And the less you use it, the harder it is to use. And I'm kind of picking on the young adults, the young people, but we're no better. Adults, older folks, we're all tempted to it. And the less we use the Word, the less we read the Word, the less we study the Word, the less we're able. The more we rely on images, the lazier our brains become. The less we're able to think, the less we're able to reason. And the more we crave the image. Well, indeed, are we counseled by our catechism. We should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of the word, not by idols that cannot even talk. That brings us to our last point, and really the crux of the matter. Whom will you trust? Whom will you trust? Satan says, why not? Use images of God. What harm can there be in a picture? And especially with Jesus. He was a man, right? You can portray men. And the world says, you know what? It can't be the case that so many other Christians are wrong. And they're doing it. And your heart says, but I like the images. They're easier. So all that stands on one side. And on the other side, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make an image, a carved image in the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. 
Now whom will you trust? The decision to have images of God necessarily rests on man-centered arguments. Well, I'm a visual learner. Well, she's a child. Well, there's no harm in it. Well, so many have done it. Those are all man-centered arguments. And every one of them forgets the most essential argument, and that is that God is sovereign. And so our final point is that by adopting those man-centered arguments, we faithlessly reject the sovereignty of God. Kids, you remember what sovereignty means? It means that God has the power and the authority and the ability to do anything He wills to do. He can cause anyone to learn the thing He wants them to learn. He can lead anyone to understand the thing He wants them to understand. And He can do so in the means that He ordains to use. Again, remember Romans 10 verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Not by images, not by the efforts of man, not by the the labors of the artists. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. It doesn't say once we turn 16 or 18 or 21. It doesn't say for you folks in the olden days, but once we get to, you know, the 2000s. No. We, the people of God, we, the covenant people, we who have received the promises, we have received. Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And God desires that we trust Him submissively. He wants us to ask, how does God want us to learn about Him? What images has He given? What means has He provided? He's given us images. We need to use those and use them well. But we also and especially need to use that main means, which is the word preached and the word read and the word studied and the word carefully, prayerfully considered. And if we refuse, insisting on the use of images, insisting on justifying our desire for what's easy, then we need to remember the Lord our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Jealous not just that we'll pay attention to the word and not to the images, but jealous especially that we would trust him, that we would believe in him, that we would expect him to use the means that he has ordained to do the thing that he's ordained them to do. And therefore God won't bless our images because they're not an evidence of trust in him. But he will bless. In fact, he will delight in our repentance. He assures us in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon doesn't matter how much you've used images in the past. 
how much you've relied on them or argued for them formerly. He calls us today to believe that His Word is enough, that His Word is sufficient, that His Word is good and effective. May the Lord lead us to shun the images that dishonor Him and to delight in the Word that so powerfully, pervasively reveals Him to our hearts. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and we praise You that You have given us Your Word and that through that Word we're able to encounter the living God. Cause us to delight in that, to delight in You and to give ourselves over to the knowledge of our God as You have ordained it to be given. May You cause us to delight in Your Word as we read it, as we hear it, as we study it. And may Your children grow in their knowledge of, their love for the living God. In the name of Jesus, Your Son, we pray it. Amen.